I was on a plane with a preacher who I'd known for some time, and this was a preacher who was very careful about the kind of language he used. He always seemed to be talking about God and God's love for people. The preacher was talking about his love for others and wanting to bring people into a saving relationship with God through Jesus. And so I was on my best behavior. He's not the kind of guy that I was going to talk about the Netflix shows that I was into or what kind of rock music I was listening to at the time. This was a guy who I had only ever heard talk about spiritual things and talk about spiritual things in a spiritual way. So I was on my best behavior. We have, uh, I think it was about a two hour flight together and we're talking about various aspects of spirituality. Again, I'm on my best behavior. When he tells me we're sitting together as passengers on this plane, he tells me a story about a guy who sat down next to a young girl on a plane. And this guy happened to be a very learned atheist. And the young girl was a fervent Christian. And they got talking a little bit and he found out that she was a Christian. And he said, do you mind if we talk a little bit? Sometimes these plane rides will go by quicker if you have conversation. The little girl said, sure. And he said, she said, what do you want to talk about? And he said, well, what about we talk about how there's no God and there's no heaven or hell. There's no afterlife. And she said, well, those sound like interesting topics. Do you mind if I ask you a question first? You know, you seem like a really smart guy. And he said, sure. And, you know, he's a smart guy and he's... He gets that kind of puffed up feeling we get when we know something that someone else doesn't and they want to, want us to bestow our knowledge upon them. And the little girl says, tell me something. I've noticed when it comes to horses, cows, and deer that they all eat the same thing. They eat grass. But when they go to the bathroom, it all looks different. Like a deer excretes little pellets and a cow... Uh, makes these like patties and a horse produces clumps. So if they're eating the same thing, why is it coming out differently? And the learned atheist kind of smiles to himself about, wow, this is a smart little girl, a little smarter than I realized. And, and then he says, you know, I, I, I'm really not sure. And she says, oh, that's interesting. I'm not sure that I should listen to your thoughts on religion because you don't know shit. So... This is a joke that is meant to work. First of all, I was shocked when this preacher said this joke. I'd never heard him say anything off color, let alone uh, what some people consider a curse word or a swear word, at least a crass word for a preacher to say. And uh, I, I, when I got over my shock, I was thinking about that joke. I was thinking about the various power structures that this relies on. F for this joke to work, we have to be on the side of the little girl, even if we're an atheist ourselves, because really the reason why we're on the side of the little girl is not necessarily that we identify with her religious beliefs, although that might help, and the reason why we are against the atheist guy and why he is ultimately the butt of the joke is because uh, not necessarily that he doesn't believe in God, but that the fact that he's prideful about his knowledge and that he is going to use his power to try and influence this little girl and debunk supposedly something that's very important to her. So our reading for today has a similar kind of setup. But in this case, it's not a know-it-all atheist who has the chance to hurt someone who's weaker than he is. It's a know-it-all Christian who has a chance to hurt someone uh, who is weaker 
than she or he is. And so to understand the context of Paul's story here, where at the end we're supposed to look at the know-it-all person in Paul's depiction, the know-it-all Christian, and go, man, I don't want to be that know-it-all Christian. Um, to understand the context, you have to understand that in this place called Corinth, which is the place that Paul is writing in the letter that we're going to be reading from, there were all kinds of different gods. And people would often sacrifice various kinds of animals to these gods. They'd go to the multitude of shrines, to the various gods, and as a family, they'd bring an animal, the animal would be sacrificed, and they'd eat the meat of that animal. And depending on the particular uh, religious understanding of the god that they were worshipping, many thought that they were communing with that god through eating this meal. And these kinds of things were so popular that oftentimes there'd be an, more meat left over for other strangers who didn't know the family to come in and have some of this meal as well. And then there was extra meat on top of that that would then get sold in the marketplace. So if you were living in Corinth, any kind of meat you were dealing with had the chance of having been sacrificed to what Christians were calling an idol. That is uh, another god that's worshipped other than the god that's revealed in the person of Jesus. So what do you do if you were a pagan, that is, you worshipped one of these gods and you celebrated these kind of ritual meals together, and now you become a Christian. Should you eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol? So Paul starts off his answer to this question by addressing know-it-all Christians. But they don't know that they're going to be the butt of the jokes yet, because Paul is putting himself with that group. He starts off saying, Okay, we know, we have knowledge that these other gods that people are worshipping are not real. There's only one true God. So obviously, meat that's been sacrificed to a supposed God is not going to be tainted or contaminated by that God because that God is not real. So Paul's saying, we know this, guys. We know it's not a big deal to eat that meat that's been sacrificed to a God because those gods don't even exist. And, and people in listening to Paul would be turning and saying, yeah, yeah, we know. We, we've got the knowledge. And then Paul undercuts the know-it-all Christians, the, the people who have this knowledge of what's true, and says the following. So we are reading 1 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Yeah, yeah, we know. Those gods aren't, they aren't even real. So what's the big deal about eating the food that's been sacrificed to these unreal gods? And then he undercuts it. Like, we know, we've got the knowledge, right? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we know. And then he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Whoa, wait, what? Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Oh, I'm not feeling so good anymore about knowing the truth here. Paul's saying knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge. So those people who have just been turning to each other, like, we know, yeah, we know about this. If you claim, if you think you know it, you, you don't have the necessary knowledge yet. This is interesting. I, I have a PhD in religion. I was talking to another person who has a PhD in psychology. And we were talking about how when we first got our PhDs, we were so much uh, more confident in what we knew than now, these many years later after getting the PhD. Because as time has gone on, 
what we've the knowledge that we've acquired is uh, includes how much we don't know, how much more there is to know. And this is what Paul is saying. Anyone who claims to know something, who already thinks they've got it all figured out, does not yet have the necessary knowledge. But anyone who loves God, and we might be thinking as we're following Paul's logic here, okay, it's, he's talking about people who know and people who don't know. And then he's saying, but anyone who knows God, oh, and then the Christians are feeling good again because they think he's going to say, if you know God, then you know everything you need to know. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says, but anyone who loves God is known by God. So Paul, again, is not saying, if you know God, hey, you've, you've, you've got it figured out. He's saying, if you know God, you are known by God. This is the idea in Christianity that we love God because God first loved us. If we know God, it's because we are known by God. Then he gets into the particulars of this uh, socio-religious, socio-cultural discussion about meat that's been sacrificed to idols. And, and again, if this seems completely irrelevant to your life, hold on with me for a second, because we're going to talk about how it relates to some specifics in our lives today. So Paul continues. We're now in verse four. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact, there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, there is one God the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. So he's established this. There's only one God, that God is revealed in the person of Jesus. These other gods do not exist. People, they're so-called gods. People worship them, but there's only one true God. It is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge. Since some have become so accustomed to idols until now, that is, he's talking to this Christian community, he's talking about people who have become Christians, but they've become Christians relatively recently, and they can still remember going and having these feasts where they were sacrificing um, animals and eating the meat in a kind of religious celebration and a communion with their God. So now how do they feel as Christians having shifted their allegiance to God alone, the God revealed in the person of Jesus alone, how then do they feel about whether they can eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols or maybe has been sacrificed to idols? Paul says, not everyone whoever has this knowledge. Since some have become so accustomed to idols until now, they still think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this liberty of yours, <coughs> excuse me, this liberty, this freedom you have to eat meat uh, if you want, even if you think maybe this has been sacrificed to idols, make sure that your liberty to do that, your freedom to do that, your right to do that, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if others see you who possess knowledge eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So by your knowledge, those weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed. But when you thus sin against members of your family and wound their conscience, when it is weak, 
you sin against Christ. Therefore, food is the cause of their failing. I will never eat meat so that I may not cause one of them to fall. So I stopped interrupting myself there. There's still a lot of confusing things going on, but let's boil this down to a main point. What is Paul talking about? What's one of the main concepts he's talking about? He's talking about conscience. Our consciences are complex. We think of conscience as our, our internal compass that directs us to what is right and what is wrong. We realize that our internal compass has been constructed by all kinds of intricate parts that have to do with the way our parents raised us, that have to do with the culture we happen to be raised in, the educational system we were exposed to, perhaps religions that we belong to or a religion that we belong to, all of these different complicated factors, the friendships we had, etc. They have shaped our conscience and our conscience, our internal compass that directs us, that determines for us what is right, what is wrong. It's so complex that we don't even know all the time what our conscience is saying. Even cognitively, we might think, well, this is my understanding of an issue, but at a heart level, it's like, oh, even though cognitively, I think that this is my understanding of the issue, there's something in my conscience that is saying, oh, don't do this. Don't do this particular thing that cognitively you think is okay to do. So our consciences are complex, but what does it say? If you know God, it means you are known by God. God knows us. There's this song by King and Country that I love, and it talks about God knowing us at our core. There's a kind of love that God only knows. God knows the real you. God knows what you have been through. So if God knows our consciences, those complex internal core parts of our sense of how we navigate this life, then we need to be generous with other people and recognize that their complex conscience is known by God. And just as we are in process and changing through the relationships that we have in life and by acquiring new kinds of information, our conscious conscience changes slightly. It might be reoriented in slightly different directions. And so too are other people in process. So let us not interfere with the conscience of other people. What Paul is saying here is even something that seems neutral, if someone is acting against their conscience, they are sinning. And we do not want to encourage people to act against their conscience. So let's talk about a couple of, well, let me first of all read this. This is such a, a, a beautiful way of talking about the conscience. This comes from Pope Paul VI during the Vatican II meeting in the Catholic Church from 1962 to 1965, this key meeting in Roman Catholicism where they were bringing the church up to date. And uh, Pope Paul VI was talking about conscience. He said this, his conscience, and he uses the language of man, uh, meaning women and men, his conscience is man's most secret core and his sanctuary. There, that is at his conscience, in the secret core, in his sanctuary, there he is alone with God, whose voice echoes in his depths. I love this, treating the conscience as the sacred place, this inner chamber where God's voice echoes. My friend had some uh, Christians over for dinner, 
and my friend was living in a very culturally diverse place. One of his favorite places to get pizza was um, at this restaurant owned by an Egyptian Muslim. And so in Islam, you have various foods that are considered halal, that is fitting to eat, and haram, which would be forbidden. And so there are particular ways of preparing pizza that make it halal. And it would be on the pizza, it would say halal pizza. But my friend had these two Christians over uh, for supper, and when they saw halal pizza, they, they kind of freaked out. Like they thought, no, 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 I'm not eating something that has been specially dedicated to people who worship uh, Allah, who are Muslims. I'm a Christian, they were saying. I'm not going to eat this halal pizza. So my friend, who is a Christian, recognized that these were, in Paul's language, weaker brothers. He didn't try to get them to go against their conscience and eat this halal pizza. He made something new for them. He made some, I think it was tuna fish salad. Uh, he went out of his way, despite the fact that he had no problem. He ate that halal pizza all the time. It wasn't his conscience that was being bothered. But he recognized these weaker brothers as siblings in Christ and deserving of sacrifice. So instead of standing over them, looking down at them from his place of knowledge, he sat next to them from a place of love. And people are in process. So it didn't just stay there. Later, he was able to have a conversation with those same guys and say, you y'all know that favorite Chinese restaurant that you love, love so much? Do you, have you ever noticed the altars to prosperity, but you don't have a, a problem eating the Chinese food? They had acquired a taste for that Chinese food from that restaurant. They weren't going back from that. So suddenly they realized, oh yeah, we're being a little bit inconsistent here. People can change. People are in process. Let's meet them where they are at in love. Another example, I work in a hospital and um, I have various kinds of patients. I'm often called to visit, I'm a hospital chaplain, so I'm often called to visit Spanish-speaking patients because among the many chaplains, I'm, I'm the only bilingual chaplain. And I was going with another chaplain to visit a Spanish-speaking patient. We knew from her chart note that she was an evangelical Protestant Christian. And uh, she was Spanish-speaking, which meant not necessarily that she didn't grow up in this country, but oftentimes if they're Spanish-dominant patients, they've probably uh, come from another country and now living in the United States. And I know from my own experience that sometimes when uh, Catholic Christians who grew up in Catholicism become evangelical Christians, they look back at some Catholic practices as idolatry, as rituals, as superstitions that kept them away from a vibrant uh, living relationship with Christ that they now experience as evangelical Christians. Now, I'm from, I'm um, the bishop in a church organization called the Convergent Christian Communion. So we intentionally blend elements of Protestantism and Catholicism. Uh, and in fact, we would have uh, rosaries. But because of my knowledge of that, I wanted to be sensitive to this evangelical Christian patient when we address the idea of giving these beads to the patient, because these are prayer beads that we'll often give to patients, the reminders of God's presence with them. But for an evangelical Christian from a Latin American context who had come to evangelicalism from Catholicism, 
This could look too much like this, a rosary, which for some evangelical Christians who were previously Catholics would represent a kind of idolatry, and for them to use ritual beads uh, in their prayer would go against their conscience. It would be for them a kind of sin. So it was something to keep in mind for us about when we decided not to uh, present these ritual beads because we were thinking we don't want to look down at this person from a place of knowledge. We want to come alongside of them from a place of love. And then there's another issue that is, wow, super controversial and touchy in many Christian uh, circles, and that is LGBTQ sexuality and faith. So there are some Christian denominations, uh, many Christian traditions, I should say, Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, many Evangelical Protestant traditions that would say homosexual sex acts are sinful, inherently sinful. So you can't marry, in God's eyes, a man and a man or a woman and a woman. There are a minority of Christian groups, including the Christian group that I belong to, that would say, no, homosexual sex acts can be as sacred or profane as heterosexual sex acts. It depends on whether this is in a loving, mutual, covenant relationship. Now, I was talking to someone who knew that I had made a transition in my life from having been a traditional conservative uh, Christian on the issue of sexuality to them belonging to a church organization that is led by a presiding bishop who is a gay man married to another man. And by the way, shout out to uh, Bishop Kenny Von Fulmer, super smart, most prayerful and, and self-sacrificial person among the most prayerful and self-sacrificial people I've ever met. So I was talking to this other person who knew that I was in uh, a, an affirming church organization and they were talking to me about their own experience. They had family members who were gay. And this person said to me, but Sean, I don't know that I'm ready to perform a service uh, to marry a man to a man or a woman to a woman. And I said, don't do that. Do not perform a service for a man and a man and a woman and a woman if your conscience tells you not to. If you're at the place where you still think this is sin, it wouldn't be fair to them and it wouldn't be fair to you. I'm not going to use my place of knowledge after all my reading and prayer that has led me to an affirming position to then get someone to go against their own conscience. I don't want to look down at them from a place of knowledge. I want to come beside them from a place of love. So what are the takeaways for us at the end of the day? If you know God, God knows you. God knows that secret chamber. God knows everything you've been through that has developed your conscience the way it exists now, the way it helps you navigate this world. And they, people, other people, who maybe get on our nerves sometimes, fellow Christian siblings who we, we see on the news holding very different political opinions than us, who we think, are we even on the same team? Paul says to us, they are in process, you are in process, those are your siblings. To undercut their conscience, to harm them, to cause them to stumble in their understanding of God would be like causing Christ to stumble. We are known by God. God knows the secret chambers of our conscience. God knows the secret cham chambers of other consciences. God calls us to respect the conscience of others and to relish in the fact that not only are we known by God, we are people of influence. 
People are looking up to us oftentimes when we don't even realize it and we will influence other people around us. Let us comport ourselves, let us express love in such a way that we are conscious of the diversity in our midst, conscious of people's consciences and conscious of the fact that not only are other people in process, but we are in process. And at the end of the day, if you are in pain today, this point that we are known by God, that God died, God sent uh, God's son Jesus to die on the cross for us out of love, John 3.16, this reality can speak to us and transform us in the midst of our pain. To go back to that king and country song, there's a kind of love that God only knows. God knows the real you. God knows what you've been through. And then I love this line. God knows where to find you. God knows how to break through in your life. God is going to break through in other people's lives as they're navigating the complexities of this life. And in the midst of your pain, right where you are, God knows it. God understands it better than others and better than even we understand our own pain. And it's there that God expresses God's love and creates breakthrough. May you have a breakthrough in love this week. And may the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be upon you and remain with you always. Amen.